Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, hey, where you been? Buckeye talk is about to begin. Hey, 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 come on in. Welcome back to Buckeye Talk Thursday Rapid Fire Podcast. Doug Maurice, Stephen Means, Nathan Baird, and boys, I got a treat for you. I am going on no sleep. Zero. Oh. <laughs> so I will be more looped, more cranky, more illogical, more forgetful than usual, which will either make this a spectacular Buckeye Talk podcast or a train wreck, which, again, is a T-shirt slogan. Spectacular or a train wreck. Buckeye Talk. Okay. I actually wondered if this might be the case when we got an email from you this morning. Yeah. Fairly early. Yeah. Yeah. Though not, it, like, though not like crazy early, though. Early for how we work. Yes. Yes. So uh, the story that I was up finishing hopefully will run Friday, and we'll see. It was a night of – you know how it is when you have a story that you want to be good and you feel like it's important and you go through the stages of, like, self-loathing and ego and nerves and panic and then feeling okay about it and then rewriting. And so uh, if you're a writer, anyone who's a writer out there, you know what it's like, man. It's great and it's wonderful and it's awful. So um, let's do this. We're going to do rapid fire and then we are going to do the five biggest recruiting misses for Ohio State football in the last five years. Great answers from the texters. I tallied up their answers, and then I gave, I gave my five, which all come from texter answers, but my five in order don't exactly match the votes. But we'll do that after the break. Instead, to start, we're going to go with this. From the 3-2-3, are we, meaning Ohio State, to Oregon what Clemson is to us? And by that, it's like the team you can't beat and that you like, you know, that's out there that like is this mountain you haven't climbed. No need to revisit how Clemson has gotten the better of us, but we stopped Oregon from possibly being a national powerhouse. We beat them for the natty and also beat them in another bowl game. And so this is a very interesting comparison to me. And I think it's, it's fun to think about how other people think about you both in college football and in life. And, um, we know that Clemson is 4-0 against Ohio State and 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, nine 7, 8, 9. 9-0, baby. 
9 and 0 the national championship game and the 2014 season the 2000 the rose bowl at the end of the 2009 season when chip kelly was like a phenomenon and jake ballard and cam hayward and terrell Pryor figured him out um, in 1967, the second ever game in the history of Autzen Stadium in Oregon, they opened their new stadium that year, was a loss for Oregon to Ohio State. If Ohio State ends up making that road trip to Oregon this year, it'll be only the second time Ohio State has played at Oregon. Steven, you had the numbers at your fingertips, 9-0. and What do you think of this comparison? Do you believe that Oregon might view Ohio State the way Ohio State views Clemson? Uh. I'm going to go no. Yes, because obviously they haven't beaten Ohio State in nine tries at it, just like Ohio State hasn't beaten Clemson in what, four, four tries at it. But the difference is some of those nine tries are regular season games, while with Ohio State and Clemson, all four of those are postseason victories for Clemson. It's Gator Bowl in 1978, Orange Bowl in 2014. And the guy said, Stephen, the guy said, no need to revisit how Clemson has gotten the better of us. This is not what Ohio State fans want to hear. Just to recap your misery, let's go through it again. Yeah. Uh, what do the lawyers say? We concede the point. What's the lawyerly thing where it's like the lawyer says, like, hey, don't bother saying it. We get it. We know it. Oh, and four. Is, we get it. The point is every single time Ohio State has lost to Clemson, it, there's been a trophy on the line. That's, made, that's probably made its thing that much more – then, you know, with Oregon, yes, there's been some opportunities to win a trophy, whether it's a national championship or just a Rose Bowl trophy, but also there's just some normal regular season victories that happened in October and November. So I think that's where it divides itself. It's every time Ohio State meets Clemson, Clemson gets in the way of Ohio State capping off its season the way it wants to cap off its season, while that's not always the case with Oregon and Ohio State. Nathan, what do you think of this? Yeah, it's not a perfect comparison, again, just because the recent history that made Ohio State fans feel the way they feel about Clemson, because I don't necessarily think it has anything to do with um, the punch game, these these earlier games. I think it's really just been these these last two episodes that have put Clemson in another um, tier in terms of the way Ohio State fans feel about them. And it's been because it's been in the playoffs. So it's, it's, a, it's a fairly good comparison. It's not quite there yet for Oregon and Ohio State. Maybe if those two teams end up being playoff teams again and playing this year and Ohio State thumps Oregon again, though that may be less likely to happen since they play in a regular season. But I think it would take another meeting like that, another year where Ohio, where Oregon has big expectations to the point that they're on the verge of realizing them by playing in the playoff, and then Ohio State just rolls right past them. I mean, where the comparison holds up is, like, the team that keeps you from being all you think you can be, right, on a big stage. And I do think, you know, to lose a national championship game, that sticks in your craw a little bit always. And and to be fair, you know, while Clemson has kept Ohio State maybe from being everything it wants to be, Ohio State never lost a national championship game to Clemson. Oregon has lost a national championship game to Ohio State. And that Rose Bowl, uh, after the 2009 season, that's, that's Chip Kelly's first year. And it's like, holy moly, here we go. And then, you know, Ohio State popped the balloon a little bit. I mean, covering that, that, and I talked about that before, Oregon felt like they were aliens. Um, 
and Ohio State brought them back down to earth. So I think that was a very – that was a significant loss for Oregon. But I think there might be a better candidate to be the team that pops Oregon's bud, uh, bubble. Oregon and Auburn have played twice mm-hmm. in their history. One was the national t- championship game at the end of the 2010 season where Auburn beat Oregon 22 to 19. The other was the non-conference game last year that Oregon blew it. And everyone says like that loss, obviously they didn't make the playoff. They had two losses. If they had beaten or uh, if they had beaten Auburn, they probably would have made the playoff. So I don't know. Maybe, maybe Oregon has two teams like that, but I think it's interesting. I like the idea of sort of rivals out of your conference. Do you guys believe that you can have a rival who isn't in your conference that you don't play every year, but that when you do play them, there's enough built up that you're like, oh, God, I, I, I hate those guys. Or do you really need to play a rival, if not every year, pretty frequently for it to be a true rivalry? Stephen, what do you think there? No, I think you can have rivals outside your conference. I think there are the normal rivals that you know you play every at the end of every season like the Iowa State, Michigan, but also there's rivals that can be built in different eras, depending on who the coaches are and what the teams look like as that rival being the team that just for some reason is always there when it's time to start winning championships. And for Ohio State right now, that's Clemson. It's there every time they try to go win a championship, they're always there to, you know, like you said, pop their bubble and they're just in the way. And because of that, they're the there is a growing hatred to the point that I think at one point we had texters out saying they might hate Clemson more than Michigan right now just because of those circumstances, not necessarily the history. So, yeah, I do think different eras provide you with two types of robberies, the one you always have, but then the one that, you know, when it's time to go win championships, here they are once again. Do you believe in that kind of rivalry, Nathan? Yeah, it reminds me of the Penn State conversation a little bit earlier this week where just because a rivalry doesn't reach – the Ohio State Michigan level doesn't mean it isn't can't legitimately be called a rivalry. I think you can have even temporary rivalries. You have a rivalry for this period in time. It was boy, it wasn't it weird that Oregon and Auburn had that thing going in the like two thousands and two tens or whatever. You know what I mean? Like um someday somebody might look back at that. It's it can it can be a thing that kind of comes and goes. That doesn't mean it isn't still a legitimate rivalry in there. I'd actually like to revise my previous statement kind of playing off of what you were saying, I, I think if, if Ohio State beats Oregon this year and then that ends up being the one loss that keeps Oregon out of the playoffs, then I think it does sort of start to take on, probably reach that same level as Ohio State Clemson. I think it's pretty close. I like it. I love the question. I love the discussion. I love thinking about stuff like that. And, um, you know, like I just – I don't know. Like Clemson is so obvious for Ohio State. I'm not sure like who another program like that would be for Ohio State that kind of like is the team. I mean, I don't know. Maybe, you know, USC beat them back-to-back years, and they had some, I guess, Rose Bowl stuff with USC. But I thought it was a fun question. Fun discussion. Thanks for that one. Let's go to a question from the 615. It seems as though Al Washington, Ohio State linebackers coach in year two, is in a unique spot this year. A lot of buzz coming into Ohio State but he has the same group largely as last year. Lost Malik Harrison, but everybody else is back. How big of a jump should we expect for the linebackers in year two of Al? And will the buzz drop off if the group is still good enough, but not great? Nathan, we'll start with you. You know, I think year two for a coach is a big deal. And I, and I still have a, a story in my pocket about Al 
when we talked to him on a conference call many moons ago, and I asked him sort of about recruiting in year two, not really coaching in year two, but I think we've all talked about him enough to, that we believe he is an, an intriguing person for the future of Ohio State. Are you expecting big things from Al Washington in year two? Well, I think the linebacker group, by most people's estimations, did make a jump, right, between the year that he wasn't here and then his first year. I thought People thought the linebacker play pretty much across the board was better in 2019. And now it is the same group coming back. You are putting, you know, moving Baron Browning over in theory, and now those three guys are going to start together. But it's it's largely the same group. I don't same, know if I expect – Same group minus the best guy. Same group minus the best guy, but taking a, a talented guy and potentially giving him a full-time role at a spot where maybe he's better suited. So I, I'm not saying that is is equal, but it, it, it is largely the same group of guys and then the, the same next – the same second-string guys. I mean, it's – I don't know if I'm expecting a big jump. I think I'm still expecting to have – I think if they were to take a step back, I think that hurts. But I don't know if, if they just come out and are essentially the same as 2019 – I don't consider that some kind of a knock against Al Washington. I think there's also two different things when you're evaluating a coach. There's how the unit is performing, and then there's the development and the recruiting side of it. And we're still kind of in our infancy of deciding or making any kind of assessment of Al Washington there. I mean, he's only, like you said, you're only second season, and the guys that he is bringing in are still blocked by this giant glut of talent or, you know, a veteran talent that's that's at the top of this depth chart right now. So I don't know how much – I'm still – to make a full assessment about Washington, I still want to see the guys that he recruits and then develops, and then those guys get into the, 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 the starting positions and are, are the nucleus of the defense. Nathan, I felt like you were maybe inching towards this a little bit, and I'm not sure that you have ever done this before on Buckeye Talk – would you like to throw some shade at Bill Davis before we move on to Steven? Do you, would you like to take that opportunity? It's kind of like a baptism for Buckeye talk. Or you want to, you want to take a pass on that? I, you know, Bill Davis and I are lifelong friends. I'll never say a, a cross word about Bill Davis. Were you also in Urban Meyer's wedding? Yeah, I was going to say, is Urban Meyer at your house? Like, <laughs> I was in Urban Meyer's <laughs> wedding. I was one of yeah, the, uh, make sure you don't I was the bar back at the reception. You were the flower boy. Uh, Steve, <laughs> the ring bear. I was the ring bear. Yeah. <laughs> My God, that would be a great story. Uh, yeah, you should have put that on your resume, by the way, when you're applying for this job. If that was the case, yeah. Stephen, where are you on Allen in year two? I think the any type of jump is going to have to come from two people because I think Tough Borland is what he is, and I think we all agree on that. And Pete Warner is going to be some version of what he was last season. I think it's going to rest in. If Baron Browning can take that jump as a guy who's freed up to just do Baron Browning things, as we've talked about on this podcast for the last two months. But then also I think Taraja Mitchell, who probably is now the rotating uh, Mike linebacker with Tough Borland. Um, what's he, like Nathan just said, he's been, you know, stuck behind two guys for the last two years. So what's he look like now? It's year three. He's clearly going to have a role this year, an you know, extended role that goes past his garbage time at this point. So what does he look like as a, former top 50 recruit who has had a good excuse of, hey, there's been guys I've been stuck behind the last two years. Well, that's not the case this year is, can he be the guy that we're going, hey, how come tough, why was tough Borland playing over this kid the last two years when he was clearly the better option? 
has Al Washington developed into that point where, you know, we can say that about him. And I agree with Nathan as well. What does the recruiting look like in 2022? Right now they've only offered seven guys in the 2022 recruiting class, one of which is Gabe Powers, who's in their own backyard as a top one, a top 50 guy. But I think that's where the jump has to come is the linebacker recruiting, which, you know, there hasn't been much linebacker recruiting the last couple of years because of what's already on the roster. I do think that the most interesting part of judging a coach is the whole package. And this is not a unique opinion, but it's like the identify talent in the recruiting cycle, go get the guy, win the recruiting battle, bring him in, develop him, and then put him in a position to succeed. I mean, that's how you judge a coach, right? So he came in midstream on all these guys. And as we said, they're veterans. And now, you know, if he unleashes something in Baron Browning, and I think Baron Browning was unleashed a little bit last year under Al Washington compared to what he was under Bill Davis. Um, I think, I think that would matter, but I think you'll really get a sense of Al Washington. I'm super intrigued by the recruiting as Steven mentioned, but when guys like Cody Simon and court Williams and Mitchell Melton and Reed Carrico guys that, you know, Al Washington had more of a role of bringing in here and now you develop the relationships and you bring them on through the program. That's when you'll get a much better sense. So I'm very curious for the recruiting jump from Al Washington. I don't know how much I'm hanging on, you know, a developmental jump from these guys. And you have to remember, you know, Greg Madison helps out with the linebackers some. I think that'll still be the case. Then I'll be curious. I I think he maybe would have more to do with, again, when all these guys leave in, in 2021 next year, when Dallas Gantt, if he's a starter for the first time, if Kayvon Pope's a starter for the first time, if Taraja Mitchell is playing more than he ever has before. And again, Al Washington didn't bring those guys in, but he would have a role in helping them become starters for the first time. I just don't know. I think it's a recruiting jump year for Al Washington. I'm not sure how much of a linebacker jump there will be, and I'm not sure how much in the end that has to really do with Al Washington or what kind of read we will get from Al Washington off of the line black off of the linebacker play this year from the three, three Oh, what freshman players or position does COVID-19 hurt the most? Do you feel more freshmen will be redshirted due to COVID? So we keep inching around this. Um, it's, uh, we'll dig in a little bit more. I, I don't I, I don't have a firm sense in my my head yet. I know the NCAA said, well, now these are, these are the dates and everything's going to start happening. I think Dr. Fauci came out here like on Thursday morning and said he's skeptical about football in the fall. You know, we see all these guys, not all these guys. We see some players while they're coming back, some some athletes, some of them football players are testing positive. All this is still up in the air, right? So we do know the time that has been missed. I don't think necessarily that anybody more will be redshirted because there is the opportunity, right, to play guys during various parts of the season. You can get a read on them and then still redshirt them or not redshirt them. I do think, though, it's possible that freshmen in general, the true freshmen this year, will have less of an on-field impact than they would have otherwise. So I don't know that that how that affects the redshirting discussion, how it affects the playing time discussion. I do think that will be the case. I don't know that I have a great answer on position groups. Steven, what's your instinct on how the time missed will affect 
these guys who are coming in in the class of 2020? I think this to start off with, I think anybody who we would all sit here and deem as probably developmental guys who are, you know, four or five year players in this program, probably red shirt immediately. They just don't even think about it just because I'm just thinking of how the NBA is kind of setting up things for how they're going to finish out their season where there's already, you know, it's, I think what, 35 people they're allowed to have instead of the 50 people allowed to be in that bubble. And obviously with football, it's going to be totally different. But if, if there's like a numbers thing where you're only allowed to have a certain amount of people on the sideline, then I think that automatically hexes out anybody who they already deem as a developmental guy from even being involved. So there's some of your red shirts for that instance. But I think to the point that you're making, then the wide receiver room or the defensive back room are the two most impacted rooms here just because I'm not saying that any of these freshmen are going to play in the defensive back room, like Legend Cavazos or Ryan Watts, who were both early enrolled leads at the cornerback spot, but I wouldn't rule it out. I mean, that you know, at some point maybe they need them just in case somebody gets hurt. But then in the wide receiver room, we all think there's at least, you know, two of these four freshmen who are going to be, you know, in the normal rotation. It might be the guys rotating on the other side of the field with, you know, G. Scott and, you know, Julian Fleming, and then maybe Jackson Smith and Jig was the rotating slot guy. So if that room, especially because now you're talking about guys who, you know, these are top 100 kids who they need to have an impact from day one, who, because they didn't have a spring and they're going to have some type of a level of a fall, but this isn't normal. You know, maybe they do take a few extra weeks than what maybe Garrett Wilson was able to, you know, take when he was making his transition to the college football level and, you know, figuring things out. Maybe they take a few more weeks than maybe they would need, Ohio State would need them to take just because they're going to have that much more of a role. And it's more than just one of them with a bunch of veterans. It's actually the other way around. It's two veterans and a bunch of first year guys. Nathan, do you agree it's mostly receivers or is there another group you're thinking about? Well, I, I, I agree more with what you were saying where I think any true freshman is severely really loses out on something by not being able to complete the full spring here. That was why they were early. I mean, the early enrollees, especially they they were here for a reason. Um, They're supposed to be here to be around the team, to be on campus, to get a a big jump. And then that jump got taken away from them to some extent. Um, Not fully. They got to have part of their semester, but they didn't get to finish it. I, I think that hurts them. And maybe it was only because, Maybe only Heartline and Day were specifically asked about this. I guess we didn't necessarily get to ask about position groups, but I do know that Heartline spoke with some concern about the fact those receivers didn't get their full spring. Um, Ryan Day certainly spoke with concern about Jack Miller and C.J. Stroud not getting their full spring. And that's where I guess there there could be maybe the, the biggest consequences. If one of those guys has to come in and play a significant role because something happens to Justin Fields and they're the backup, um, we might see that not having a full spring had some consequences for the fall. Yeah. I wonder if there'll be like lingering effects into 2021 for the quarterbacks, which we've sort of talked about before that they'll, they'll just be not as far ahead of Kyle McCord when he comes in and they just generally, they, they lost a spring. That's a big deal for those quarterbacks. I just think in general, it's possible. I think Jalen Harris as a junior in the receiver room, I think, even Cameron Babb coming off injury as a redshirt fresh as a redshirt sophomore in the receiver room. Jamison Williams, we all figured was all going to have a ro- already going to have a role. I think Jalen Harris maybe would be like, not that anyone's benefiting from any of this COVID stuff, but in terms of getting on the field may benefit the most that just, if you just thought, I'm not sure how Jalen Harris will squeeze in with all these talented young guys, maybe especially early on, 
that it's just harder for Julian Fleming and G Scott to be ready on the outside. And Jalen Harris is like, well, I've been here a while. Pick me. I'm ready. And, and I think that could, that could be one of the outcomes of this. Right. And I do think, I do think receiver is the place that you'll, that you'll see it most. And I just, I think that'll be across the country. Right. I mean, we're going to really find out how much spring football mattered. We're going to really find out how much you can do, same with the NFL, how much you can do mentally, all this playbook stuff they're doing over Zoom and that kind of thing, getting mental reps but not being out on the field, not getting timing down, not being able to rep it in person with coaches. How much of a difference is that, right? And we're all going to find that out. But I, I just do think maybe Jalen Harris has a little bit bigger of a role than he would have in another situation where he may have been in a, in a, in a spot to sort of be passed by by the younger guys. I'm, I'm interested to see if the 10-game – conference season which is one of the things that's on the table if that actually has more impact on who redshirts and doesn't than the lack of a spring just because the structure of the season is different well but you i think fewer, red- fewer games yeah yeah in the end the whole redshirting discussion really matters far 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 less than it gets talked about yep because like mm-hmm. You know. It's not the same as in basketball. It's it's one of those Ooh, things yeah. where the terminology is the same between the two sports, but you have just such a much bigger roster in football that it really doesn't tend to impact what a team ends up doing on the field that that given year. Especially yeah. since they have the four games now. It's you know you got some time to right. figure it out. But I mean, off offensive linemen, it 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 matters. But other than that, I mean, just like there are not that many guys who actually could have helped you in year one by playing, but then redshirted, didn't play enough, redshirted instead, and then in year five make a huge difference, right? Usually it's that if they're around in year five, they probably weren't ready in year one, so it wasn't that Mm -hmm. big of a deal. Or if they actually probably should have played in year one, they don't stick around for year five. You know, we had a huge giant, all we talked about Sam Hubbard's first year was redshirting, 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 and then he left after four years. Like, it didn't matter. They redshirted him. They shouldn't have. And it was like, I don't know. Like, what was the what was the deal? So um, it just is – it's one of those things. It's kind of interesting to talk about. Sometimes I get bored by it um, because it doesn't really matter all that much. Um, this guy has been – or person, this guy or woman has been trying to get this question to us, and I like it. And I finally got it in here. And I cut off the the – Area code of the phone number. I apologize. But this person will know that we finally asked it. Because they said, I'm resending this to you for your non-sports question during the podcast. Let me know if you want it clarified because it's an awesome question. Believe me. Love the confidence. The U.S. government appoints you as the czar of film. Your goal is to choose three movies that every single person in the country must see by the time they're 18. What three films do you choose? This topic arose after a former roommate of mine in his 30s said he had never seen The Wizard of Oz. Stephen, we'll start with you. What are your three movies that everybody should see by the time they're 18? Okay. Um, my first one is called The Wood, and it has Omar Epps and Richard T. Jones and Tay Diggs in it. And it's basically about these guys. This guy's getting married, and his you know, two best men are, have been his best friends for his entire life. And you kind of go back and forth between – the wedding day and then them growing up in Inglewood. And it's by far, it's one of the best movies I watched in my childhood. I think everybody should go see that. 
I think everybody should go see Coming to America. And if you, I mean, we all know why you should go see Coming to America. It's one of the funniest movies of all time. A little slow. And it's oh, a little slow. Outside of the Le Marie's house, where apparently slow. the Coming to America movie doesn't make it past what was that, the second round of a movie bracket? Good, re- good clips. Pacing. A little bit of the pacing. Excellent clips. That's fair. Go ahead. It's fair. It's I mean, just. Just Randy, Randy Jackson and Sexual Chocolate alone Thank makes that you. movie worth watching. Come on, man. And then lastly, it's Friday. Friday is a classic movie for a lot of different reasons. One, it's just funny as can be. And then, you know, I think it's a good alternative to what Boys in the Hood was, where it was such a dark movie. It's like, hey, every day living in that environment is not, you know, life or death. It's, they have fun just like everybody else. But then also, as we were sitting here talking about the Ohio State Clemson thing, I started thinking about the scene with Craig and his father in the kitchen. And he's like, why is it that every time I'm in the kitchen, you're in the kitchen? And I feel like that's how Ohio State fans feel about Clemson right now. Every time we're in the playoff, you're in the playoff. Ruining stuff, getting referees to make calls in your favor, beating us 31 to nothing and showing us our quarterbacks aren't good enough. So I, Friday is my, last, is my last choice there. Go see all three of those movies if you haven't seen them. If not, you didn't have a good childhood. Good answers. I, to be fair, Clemson is is like always in the kitchen, and so is Alabama. But uh, but it's a good analogy. Um, Nathan, film czar, do you have any movies about pharmacists? Um, let me check. Not explicitly. Okay. Um. So the the movie that jumped right to my brain, and it might have been. I I actually I I saw this question in the queue a couple weeks ago. So it was already in my brain before. And this was the, this was the movie that like jumped right in my head then. And then I happened to go see this movie last Friday at the South drive-in here in Columbus, which has been like a thing we've done now a couple times and, and had a lot of fun with, um, since we can't go to the actual movie theaters and that's back to the future. I think back to the future is one of the like underrated iconic movies. It's held up so well. Um, it doesn't feel dated, even though it's set in, or it's, it was a 1985 movie that was set in 1955 and there's no cell phones and there's no internet, but they keep the special effects kind of to a minimum and the, the film and, and it's still just about, even though it's sci-fi, it's like real people. So that's why I put it on there instead of like star Wars or something like that, because I feel like it would be easier for anybody who sees it to kind of relate to it. And it, and again, it's, 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 it's got a lot of American history in there. You've got the fifties you've and rock and roll and you've got the eighties and kind of what, and, and it just kind of covers a lot of bases. And I think it's just a fun movie. I think it's, it's family accessible. Um, I wanted something that had maybe a little bit more serious things with, um, American history and also just being who I am and who we are. I wanted some kind of nod to journalism in here. So I also put all the president's men which I think is um, obviously a more serious movie, but I think another movie that would be accessible to people of all ages. It's, it's a really, uh, even though it's something that you know how it turns out the first time you see it, or you should, um, I feel like it just, it's a really does a good job of building tension through the whole thing and really keeps you kind of riveted. And it gives you some perspective on not just that episode, the Nixon administration and the Washington post reporters who uncovered Watergate, but also, I think it says more about like broader themes in power structures in American society and things like that. And then the third one 
I wanted something more recent. And and then on top of that, just because of also maybe what's going on in America right now, it made me think of a movie that would maybe speak to some of those things. So I put Get Out, which was the phenomenal Jordan Peele movie that came out, I guess now three or four years ago. Um, so it's, it's, you get kind of the horror genre in there for people, since I feel like that's an important genre of, of, of American movie history, but it also, again, it's speaking to some broader themes in American society. It's also hilariously funny at the same time that it's got some, you know, the, the, the kind of the more, uh, thriller aspects to it. Um, a movie I, I highly recommend everybody go see. And, uh, that was my three. I also have one of my films that uh, deals with larger issues in American society, and that's Tommy Boy. Um, <laughs> it deals with uh, cow tipping, cow tipping, like being fat. Um, it's set in Ohio. They hit a deer. I do not listen to this very much. You guys, the, the I'm down on. I'm like down on Bill Simmons. I unsubscribed. Uh, he's not handling this this last couple months very well. But they, you ever listen to the Rewatchables podcast that the Ringer sure. does? Where they go? Yep. I had never listened to one, and I listened to Tommy Boy a couple weeks ago. And you know how like like Chris Farley had that sketch on uh, Saturday Night Live where he interviewed Paul McCartney, and it was like the talk show yep. was like, "Remember when you did this? That was awesome." That is what Bill Simmons does with everything. I know I am so down on him and I know he's a gazillionaire and he basically invented modern sports writing. Bill Simmons is like the original Buffalo wing place in Buffalo that invented the sauce that created Buffalo wings that now if you go there, people say, don't go there. It's a tourist trap. It's not that good. There are a million places that are better, but like they invented it. So you kind of still want to go there. But like once you invent the sauce, everybody can kind of take the sauce. And so the original is far from the best. Bill Simmons' Tommy Boy podcast sucked. So Tommy Boy is one. It sucks so – wait, it sucks so bad that you felt the need to put Tommy Boy on your list? I love Tommy Boy. It angered me as a Tommy Boy fan that – Bill Simmons was so horrible at talking about it. And um, I just think he's sucking at podcasting lately, and it irritates me. I, I like uh, some things that The Ringer does. I think their movie stuff is borderline terrible. It's unsophisticated. And it's yeah. like it's like us talking about calzones, except apparently they did it like 400 times, two yeah, hours at a pop. We talked about calzones once for six minutes, and we're like, let's not talk about calzones anymore. I don't know. He's a millionaire. It's fine. Um, another one is the Godfather trilogy, but I would say Godfather 2. I had not watched it before I went to college, and I was a security monitor in college, which I've told stories about before. My junior year, my roommate had a TV with a, v- a VCR built into it, and when I went to be a security monitor at night from 8 o'clock at night till 2 o'clock in the morning, monitoring people coming into a dorm, I carried – this TV VCR combo with me like through the quad so I could take it to work and plug it in and watch the Godfather movies for the first time. And it made me feel a little silly that I had not watched them to that point. So it's like entertaining and like very well done, but it also was like, man, I should have watched these before. So I'd say the Godfather too. Have you guys seen the Godfather movies? I have. 
I've seen the first two. I have not seen three, which is kind of roundly, roundly panned. Yeah. And then my last one is maybe Toy Story 4 because um, it makes you, makes you cry. It's like the thing at the end. It's like all the toys are going to die. Your childhood is being burned up, so you think. Um, but also, I, instead I'm going to say this movie called a, a Perfect World, which is sort of like uh, a little bit of like a road trip movie. It's from 1993. Kevin Costner breaks out of jail and like sort of nicely kidnaps this kid. And Clint Eastwood is like the sheriff or the Texas Ranger, like following him along uh, and trying to track him down. It's like a road trip movie about like this, like Kevin Costner, who's kind of like this nice guy from jail and this like very sheltered, naive kid. And like Kevin Costner's kind of teaching him about the world. Um, it might be R. I don't know if you should watch it before you're 18, but I love it. And it's kind of a weird one. So I'm going to put that on my list. All right. Enough movie talk from us. That was at least better than the fricking rewatchables, which I will never listen to again. Get your act together, Simmons. We'll be back. Five recruiting misses in the last five years for, for Ohio State, plus a DeMario McCall question and a JT Barrett question. Coming up next on Buckeye Talk. All right, so we're back with our five recruiting misses of the last five years. This was a great question from a texter. I did five recruiting hits last week, and then I said, here's the definition of five recruiting misses. It's a guy who did not wind up here. I, I don't want to go through, hey, if we just list all the five stars who came to Ohio State and then, like, weren't starters, that's not the point to me. It's like the miss in recruiting of, like, you maybe thought they were going to get this guy and they did not get the guy, and then not getting him maybe kind of hurt him a little bit or left a little bit of a hole. So, like, again, at a place like Ohio State, there are not a ton of these people. Um, Nathan, obviously, again, this is a little back in the, the, the way back machine. Steven, this was, I still think, before you, but would you have a guess at who the overwhelming, and maybe, Nathan, you might have a guess too. The overwhelming runaway winner for the texters on who the answer to this question was. The number one miss. Uh, was it Jackson Carmen? Yeah, Jackson Carmen. Jackson Carmen. Jackson Carmen got 36 votes. Do you have a guess on who was number two? Someone right. they're playing this year for sure. Um, Micah Parsons. Micah Parsons, yeah, number bro. two, yeah. Penn State linebacker. Number three was – why can't I read the thing? Oh, B. John Robinson was number three yeah. by the Texters. Arizona running back. They thought they were getting 2020. They didn't get. And then tied for fourth and fifth was Clark Phillips, the guy who decommitted after Jeff Halfley left last year, the cornerback who flipped to Utah, and Marvin Wilson, Florida State defensive tackle in the class of 2017. Those are the Texters, okay? Jackson Carmen won, Micah Parsons two. Um, Bijan Robinson three, and then Clark Phillips and Marvin Wilson four and five. Here's my list. I'm going to start with five. Five for me is Marvin Wilson, who was the in the class of 2017, and this is what blows your mind about the 2017 class that was number two in the country and had all these guys. It could have been even better. They got that year, Ohio State got the number two, number four, and number six guys out of the state of Texas. Jeff Okuda, Baron Browning, and J.K. Dobbins. They almost got the number one guy out of the state of Texas, who was Marvin Wilson, a defensive tackle. It basically came down to LSU, Florida State, and Ohio State. He had said that Ohio State was like a team he really liked as a kid, 
they were a little late to him in the recruiting process that kind of set them back a little bit. As it was coming down to the announcement, I think he announced it in an all-star game. It was still kind of up in the air. People thought he was maybe going to go to LSU. I think LSU might have been viewed as the favorite at that point. But he picked Florida State. And if he was on this team right now, it, and again, Davon Hamilton was great last year, right? And we've seen them have good defensive tackles. They have Tommy Togiai and Haskell Garrett and Teron Vincent lined up. Marvin Wilson was first team all ACC last year. He, had, he played nine games before he had a season ending injury. He had five sacks. He's been kind of part of the, like the difficult stuff at Florida state with, you know, Willie Taggart only being there for a year. Now they go to Mike Norvell. Um, Marvin Wilson actually brought up some stuff this week about what was going on down there. I just think if you add him, whew, if you add him at defensive tackle as a playmaking defensive tackle, I just think you would have been a difference maker. And, they have some guys, but I think he would have been a difference maker last year. Do you think a guy like that, a guy who's first team all ACC, five star guy, he was the number six overall player in the country? Do you think Ohio State could have used a guy like that at defensive tackle last year, Stephen? Uh, I mean, the defensive tacklers were pretty solid last year, sure. I think the interesting thing is, man, what if you have, you know, Marvin Wilson and Chase Young, two five star top 10 players in the country on the same defensive line wreaking habit. It's a great what if. And I understand like when you look at the credentials of a five-star kid, that's a miss, but I don't necessarily think Ohio state missed him much in the last, you know, two seasons, especially when he would have had a role as a sophomore and a junior where, you know, in 2018, they had Draymond Jones on the inside. And then 2019, you know, the combination of Jay Sean Cornell, BB Landers, Davon Hamilton got the job done. So, from a recruiting standpoint, sure, it's a miss, but on the field, I don't know if, you know, that was a dire thing for Ohio State to not get that kid. Well, it's not dire, but again, if you're trying to go through, like, where they have little bit of yeah. holes at all, come on, man. I mean, what what am I going to say, defensive end? Yeah, it's it's uh, it were you're being if we're, yeah for the sake of being picky, yeah, it's like shame on you, you didn't get the five star defensive tackle. Uh, from I mean, the they five, needed more this year than they did last year. Uh, well, I mean, it just depends. I mean, it depends what Toronto. Like, yeah, depends. Once again, what's the five-star 2018 guy going to do? Then at that point, so it's. I'll take the number six guy in the country. I know Davon Hamilton was good and had a good year. I'll take the number six recruit in the country. Uh, from the five-one-three, I'd honestly say Marvin Wilson. I remember watching his live commitment decision and being very disappointed when he picked Florida State. Well, I think Teron and Tommy can both be really good. I just think he's better. And will definitely be a very early pick next year. Um, so I thought that was uh, that was a good choice by that texter. All right, my number four guy is Jackson Carmen. I only have him fourth, even though he was the overwhelming choice. The texters from the two hundred two, Jackson Carmen should have been a lock to get him, and yeah, they ended up with Nicholas Petit Frere. But Carmen's a multi-year starter already, and oh yeah, he's from Ohio. Mm-hmm. From the six one four. While it pains me to say this, and it's early in his career, I vote Jackson Carmen as a gigantic recruiting miss. Very high-profile signing for Clemson for an Ohio product. Another indication that they have usurped Ohio State in terms of national prestige in the last five years. Uh, and that that person also made the point like. Not only did they lose him, they lost him to a team that then he played against Ohio State and kind of, you know, was in charge of like trying to block Chase Young last year. That's what makes it worse. 
And the 5-1-3, Jackson Carmen, no doubt the best O-line in the country if he's the starting right tackle right now. So, Stephen, you think – would you have Jackson Carmen first on this list? It sounds like you're very enthused about this. I would because, one, he's from Ohio, and it's – you know, look what happened because of that now. Like, it made Paris Johnson Jr. a must to, like, have that five-star kid from Southern Ohio on your roster. But also, you had to deal with him. You had to deal with Jackson Carmen in the college football playoff, and he was the main guy who was on Chase Young. And – did a pretty decent job in comparison to what maybe the rest of the country has been able to do on Chase Young in 2019. He didn't, Chase didn't have a sack for the third straight game. And like we, like we talked about when we were in, were in Arizona, they didn't, they double chase sometimes. Sometimes they just allowed their five star guy to go up against their Ohio State's five star guy. Jackson Carmen was able to get the better of him. But the fact that, you know, Yes, you ended up with Nicholas Petit Frere, but he is not necessarily panned out the same way as a five-star recruit that Jackson Carmen has started to pan out as a five-star recruit, along with the fact that you had to deal with him later on down the line, I think shoots him up to number one. And the cherry on top is, oh, yeah, he's from two and a half hours away. I think, I mean, I, this has kind of been disputed. I know, like, Chase has all offseason been, like, retweeting stuff of, like, hey, actually, Chase Young was good against Clemson. Here's why. Look, he, he didn't have a sack, but he was getting a lot of pressure. I, I haven't watched that game lately again. I don't know. I, I, I don't know how much of a huge impact Jackson Carmen made in that game. He's the only returning starter on the offensive line at Clemson this year. He's important for them. He was third-team All-ACC last year. I just don't know, like, did was Thayer Munford enough to make up for him? Nathan, the, the comment from the texter, if they had Jackson Carmen right now, they'd have the best offensive line in the country. Considering they do have Thayer Munford, and then they do have an option between Petit Frere and Paris Johnson. And the interesting thing is, Jackson Carmen that year was the number two offensive lineman in the country, the number 17 overall player. The only offensive lineman ranked higher than him was Nicholas Petit Frere who was the number 10 overall player, the number one offensive tackle. So they missed on the kid in Ohio. They got a kid from Florida. But clearly Jackson Carmen has been better than Nicholas petit Frere so far. Do you think there's like a gaping hole left by him? That if he was starting instead of Thayer Munford or if he was locked in as the right tackle right now, that Ohio State's offensive line would be vastly in a vastly better situation? I don't think it's a gaping hole, but I also don't know how you could argue – that this guy who now has real experience at a very high level has been doing it now for a program like Clemson, getting into a national championship game, you know, beating Ohio State head-to-head. I don't know how you can't say having that level of a player in the offensive line mix this coming season wouldn't make Ohio State better. So I don't think it's a gaping hole, but he would make Ohio State better. Uh, One more comment from the 937, and a couple people mentioned this guy too, so I'll work him in here. Two guys come to mind immediately, Rondale Moore and Jackson Carmen. Um, Carmen was the one who at first seemed like a big loss, then Urban Urban pulled out the surprise to get NPF, which softened the blow now three years later. Clemson appears to have won that one. Also, Rondale Moore, again, was kind of like Ohio State got in on him late. Um, Went to Purdue. I think he made the right choice to go to Purdue because he played as a freshman and beat Ohio State. He wouldn't have played here, and we've talked about that. He would have been blocked by Paris Campbell and K.J. Hill his freshman year. Uh, again, Ohio State tried with Rondale Moore a little bit, got in a little bit late. I'm not disputing that that Jackson Carmen is a miss. I just think they're, they, they wound up kind of okay, Ohio State did, that they wound up in the end kind of okay enough that he's not 
higher on my list. Number three on my list is Bijan Robinson. We've talked about that. I think they misplayed it. I think they misstrategized it. He was the same high school as Lathan Ransom in Arizona. Ransom went first. I think they Bijan kind of lost interest then. They end up he went, he got it down to Texas, USC, and Ohio State. But that was a position of great need. We just had the Trey Sermon podcast. They might be okay. And the misses at running back last year helped them get Travion Henderson and Evan Pryor for 2021. But there's a hole right now. There's a hole in the 2020 season when they're trying to win a national title. And I think B. John Robinson would have played. Nathan, do you think that Bijan should definitely be on this list, even though he has not played a snap of college football so far? And we don't have to do a gigantic running back thing because we talk about it all the time. But does he make sense as one of the top five here? Yeah, because, again, I still think the depth is questionable at running back this year because of the injuries with with Teague and Crowley and, and to some extent, Sermon, right? So I still think, you know, adding another talent running back to the mix this year would be important for Ohio State. Or maybe they wouldn't even have had to go get Trey Sermon if they believed enough in Robinson. When you take the in, into consideration the impact on the team, and again, it hasn't been gauged yet, Stephen, do you do you understand me ranking Bijan Robinson ahead of Jackson Carmen, or do you think I'm nuts? No, I get it. I mean, we've been sitting here talking about, you know, the lows and running back recruiting for a year now. So I get why you would rank him above Jackson Carmen. I get why you would have him this high on a list. I think what's interesting is the fact that, you know, to the point of what you're saying with B. John Robinson, they tried to do in 20, in 2020 what they pulled off in 2021 with Kendall Milton and B. John Robinson, possibly getting them both in here. And for whatever reason, it didn't work in 2020, but it worked in 2021 with the same concept of two top 100 guys coming to one's a five star and one's a highly rated four star can coming into the same school. But yeah, it's, it's understandable. You know, you can't talk about something for a full year and then leave one of those guys off the list. Number two for me is Micah Parsons from the 7-3-4. I want to say Micah Parsons, our linebacker group has been a weakness of the defense for years, even though they're good compared to most teams. Micah would have been our best linebacker since Ryan Shazier. I also think he would single-handedly uh, improve our linebacker recruiting just by having him here. From the 4-4-0, Micah Parsons sees the difference maker that I expected Baron Browning to be. I still have hope Browning can get there, but I'd feel a lot better if Parsons was also on the Buckeyes 2020 roster. I will admit when Bob Flounders on the Wednesday podcast, and if you guys haven't listened to it, make sure you catch it, our gigantic Penn State preview with Bob Flounders of PennLive.com. When he was talking about Micah Parsons and how good he is and what he does for the Penn State defense at outside linebacker, kind of just being able to go make plays, I thought to myself, boy, wouldn't it be nice if that's what Baron Browning is this year? Steven, to have a linebacker like that, how much of a difference do you think it would have made for Ohio State the last couple of years? He was the number five overall player in the class of 2018. He's from Pennsylvania but Ohio State was very in on him for a while. You know, 18, 19, 20, those three, th- those three seasons, how much do you think Micah Parsons would have impacted Ohio State? Um, I don't think he would have the last two seasons. Not because – and I, he's, he's five-star kid, and all those things can be true right now, but that doesn't change the fact that Ohio State's linebacker room looked the way it did, and – his first coach he would have gotten here was Bill Davis. So, Boom. yes. Stevenson on the Bill Davis slander. Look at so, that. 
So the, Bill Davis would have ruined even Micah Parsons. So what I'm, exactly, like Baron Browning was a five-star kid, the number one outside linebacker in his class, the number 11 overall player in his class as well, and we see how that has gone here since he's been dealing with Bill Davis for two years before he got to Al Washington. And you just said it. What if that's exactly what Baron Browning is this year for Ohio State? Then it doesn't matter about Micah Parsons because it's the same trajectory, except one didn't have an incompetent coach for two years. Steven, getting hot. Nathan, I, Michael Parsons is really good. Like, again, he it's, it, he's really good already, which is sport, sort of the Jackson Carmen thing. It's like, well, like Ohio State might be okay with Paris Johnson and Nicholas Petit Frere this year, but Jackson Carmen has already done it. Ohio State might be good with Baron Browning this year, but Micah Parsons has already done it. He was an All-American last year as a sophomore. What do you think of the idea of putting a linebacker like that on this team right now? Again, I think I think it, it would be a benefit. And I also wonder if you go back three years, I mean, does it change the trajectory of someone like Tuff Borland? Like if, if he's better than him, maybe those intangibles that put someone like Borland on the field over some of the other guys who would challenge for that position, maybe they don't ever rise to the top because you've got someone with, with Parsons talent that's just so obvious that he has to be the one who gets that spot. Micah Parsons, and, and people know this, he had the weird sort of like secondary NCAA recruiting violation when he went on the game day set here mm-hmm. that kind of cooled off his recruitment. But his dad um, later said, told the lantern on during his official visit to Ohio state, he tweeted that he thinks Dwayne Haskins should take over for JT Barrett at quarterback after Ohio state lost to Oklahoma and Ohio state cooled off on him after that. He did have some things. I I think Ohio State probably could have gotten him or certainly could have stayed competitive for him. They chose basically to stop recruiting him. And they they put it on the NCAA violation. They reported themselves. They said what they would do is stop recruiting him. And they were like, well, it's a violation. We can't recruit you anymore. I think they could have gotten around that. I think it was a decision to just kind of back off the kid. Um and in the end, like Micah Parsons has been like a really good player and has had zero problems at Penn State. So like if that was the issue, that kind of turned out not to be an issue. Again, Bob Flanders is talking about what a great guy he is. So um, I, I think they just chose to have him not be here more than losing out on the recruiting battle. And maybe maybe that in itself is kind of a mistake. And, and it happens to schools sometimes. But again, they get so many guys. You have to find he's good. And I do think he would have found his way onto the field. And I do think he would be an upgrade for Ohio State at probably their one spot on the defense where we've said they have not been as super productive as they have been on the defensive line or at cornerback. Number one then for me is Donovan Peoples-Jones. And he only got three votes. He did not make the top five from the texters. But – I'm pretty in on this. From the 502, my top choice is Donovan Peoples-Jones. Urban Meyer would also tell you the same thing. I think a couple of years with Brian Hartline, and he could have given us a really elite option this past season when we needed one the most. From the 706, Donovan Peoples-Jones, that miss was really on him. His three years as a Buckeye would have been off the charts. Plus, and this is a good point, really good point. Plus, the Buckeyes haven't had a punt returner like him in the last three years. Just a punt return could have made a difference in any of the losses in the past couple of years. He was a difference maker if he would have been a Buckeye. Um, and also from the 419, 
Donovan Peoples-Jones, top 25 recruit in 2017. And I always felt like he was massively underutilized at Michigan. And that stellar recruiting, that stellar class of 2017, this texture points out correctly, Ohio State wound up at receiver with Trayvon Grimes, Jalen Harris, and Elijah Gardner. I couldn't even tell you what they ended up doing and where. Trayvon Grimes ended up transferring to Florida, and Jalen Harris and Elijah Gardner haven't played. I think Peoples-Jones could have gotten more production for us than Ben Victor or Austin Mack did last year. Um, and I think that is an important point. I think Donovan Peoples-Jones, and I wrote about this when the Browns drafted him in the sixth round, that like Ohio State missed on him. He's from Detroit. Michigan wins that battle. Ohio State was the first major school to offer him. I said it before because I'm so proud of myself when I do something with recruiting once every 10 years. I vividly remember talking to him as a ninth grader when he was at an Ohio State recruiting camp, and he talked about getting an offer from Ohio State. They were right there. Then Michigan fought back. Urban tried hard at the end to get him again, and they fell short. The point of, would he have been a better option than Ben Victor or Austin Mack? Would he have done something more on the outside last year? I think is a valuable one, and that's why I have him here. Because that 2017 class, Grimes transferred. Tyjon Lindsey, who was a top 50 national recruiter receiver, who some people mentioned, he was from Bishop Gorman, the same high school as Tate Martell. I think they kind of had a thing, and like Tajon Lindsay decommitted and then went to Nebraska. Then it didn't work out there. Now he went to Oregon State. But they were dancing around like with a pretty good receiver group and wound up with not much of a receiver group in that class. And I think Donovan Peoples-Jones at Ohio State would have been a difference maker. And at that position, I think they could have used one more difference maker last year. And Steven, that's why he's my number one. What do you think? I don't have a problem with it. And also because of what we just talked about when discussing what room is going to be affected with these freshmen. What if, you know, let's just say he's at Ohio State and instead of being a three-year guy, he's a four-year guy just because of, you know, the difference in production that he has at Ohio State because he's rotating and, you know, it's just not the same. Well, now all of a sudden you've got a fourth-year guy in Donovan's People's Jones. You've got Chris Olave and Garrett Wilson, those are your three starters. Just because, you know, like I said, the production is different, so maybe he's not an NFL draft pick yet. So that, that, there's where it starts. But also, I think when I look at Donovan Peoples Jones and the stories you just told, I think of Garrett Wilson immediately. You know, Ryan Day had just gotten to Ohio State, so the quarterback room didn't necessarily look like, look like what it looks like now. And I just remember Garrett Wilson talking about on his signing day, the first time we got to talk to him, how he and Ryan Day talked about how the passing game was going to you know change and there was going to be more throwing the ball down the field and then he watched Ryan Day over the next two years you know turn that into truth and not just words he was speaking when they would talk on the phone about these things and it's part of what led Garrett Wilson to come to Ohio State it's also why I think Ohio State's recruiting wide receivers at the level of Donovan People Jones right now is because we've seen the passing game you know improve and really evolve under Ryan Day so Maybe if Ryan Day's here a year earlier, Donald Peoples-Jones is on Ohio State's roster because of those points of you've got a five-star receiver who believes in, you know, the level of quarterbacks that's coming into Ohio State and the passing game that's around it. I think, I think at, that, at that time for the 2017 class, if you were – and he, he was the number one receiver recruit in the country. If he wants to go to a passing system, I think the idea that, like, Lago well, play for Jim Harbaugh instead of Urban Meyer made sense at mm-hmm. that point, right? And like right now, that wouldn't make sense, which is to your Almost point, the Steve. Exact so, opposite. Yeah. yeah. 
So I, I think that would have made sense. I just think he would have made a difference. And when you saw how the receiver recruiting went in that 2017 group, that's why he's my number one. A lot of a, a couple other people, some defensive backs that people mentioned. Jaden Woodbay was a guy who was committed to Ohio State, flipped to Florida State in 2018, um, has been good at Florida State. Jordan Battle, guy, a defensive back who, in the transition from Urban Meyer to Ryan Day, he was the biggest guy they lost, flipped to Alabama. He started four games as a true freshman at Alabama last year, is projected to start for Alabama as a sophomore this year. Clark Phillips in that mix. Again, we see how Kerry Combs is like getting after it and recruiting in the 2021 class. Part of that is because, as we've talked about here before, they had a little bit of a lull in the defensive back recruiting maybe for a year or two. I think Battle and Woodbay contribute to that. Clark Phillips is part of that. So, so those are guys that are worth mentioning. Can we, um, I don't know if I agree with the Clark Phillips one because, I mean, yeah, this, this is a top 50 recruit you lost out on short. But with, when you add context to that of he didn't necessarily commit to Ohio State, he committed to Jeff Halfley, and Jeff Halfley was only here for a year. It's not like with, you know, in years past where, you know, the guy in Jeff Halfley's position wasn't necessarily doing the job to the best of his ability, I don't think. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's 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 the circumstances matter, right? It's like, why didn't you get the guy? Um, so I think the circumstances are understandable. It, you know, it would be good if you lose a coach and that, I mean, if you're recruiting a kid that he's only committing to his position coach, that's a rough go, right? We know that's yeah. a big deal, but then also maybe there's something a little off in the message, right? That like you didn't sell the school enough, you didn't sell the program enough, you didn't sell the brotherhood enough. It was just about the one coach. But I get what you're saying, Stephen, that like, it's not like, what the heck happened? It's like, well, it's very clear what happened. The coach left and he bailed. So I understand what you're saying. There was just a run a little bit there. Those are three. That's an 18 kid, a 19 kid, and a 20 kid. All highly rated defensive backs who were committed and then flipped. And again, it's not dire, but if you had any of those guys around right now, I think any of them would have a chance to be in the mix right now right yeah. not necessarily ahead of seven banks or cam brown or guys like that it would still but in be the mix. shot way to one side and then a bunch of guys kind of fighting for the slot position in the other outside corner yeah, yeah. The, the other thing i want to mention and this was outside our five-year range but but a couple people mentioned this and it's worth mentioning and it's just funny how clemson factors into this someone mentioned taj boyd <laughs> as a quarterback recruit and I'll read that from the 216. It's more than five years, but Taj Boyd ending up at Clemson when he grew up a Troy Smith fan ended up really hurting. With Terrell Pryor leaving early, Boyd could have actually played earlier than expected. He was a very solid college player, and he got the whole Clemson success started. If he goes to Ohio State, Clemson doesn't have the success to show Deshaun Watson and get him there. And I wrote a lot about that when Terrell Pryor was a starting quarterback as a true freshman, Ohio State had a heck of a time lining up any quarterback recruits behind him because they were like, well, I'm not going to play. Your starter's a freshman who was the number one recruit in the country. And Taj Boyd was on the top of that list as a guy who just felt he would have been blocked by Terrell Pryor here. And then the other people, the other guy that Ohio State, that people mentioned, again, who fell outside the range is Deshaun Watson. From the 216, this might not fit the question because he was from six years ago in the 2014 class, but I think Watson is the most important miss of the last decade. 
I know that Ohio State finished second in his recruitment, but think about how he would have changed Ohio State's fortunes from 2015 to 2017. The quarterback was what held Ohio State back most during those years, and we almost had arguably the best one of the decade. And this is me. You know I love Deshaun Watson. With all the problems of the 2015 offense, I think Urban would have eventually turned to Watson in his second year because of his supreme talent and leadership abilities. They would have for sure repeated with that ridiculous talent and Watson at quarterback. The dynasty talk begins. Then 2016, they still make the playoff, but do not get shut out by Clemson because we now have Watson. Because of the youth on the team and the weakness of the offensive coaching staff, they probably lose by two or three touchdowns to Alabama. However, I still think that Urban is willing to see the ineptness of Warren or Beck and turns the reins over to Wilson and Day. JT Barrett has already transferred and Burrow or Haskins take over in 2017. And Ohio State is officially QBU. Plus, by losing Watson, there's no way that Clemson gets launched on this dynasty. And the argument about the top program is Ohio State versus Alabama, not Alabama versus Clemson. I am that alternate history fanfic. I am here for Deshaun Watson as a Buckeye fanfic. That was awesome. I'm not sure I disagree with a single word of what that 216 texter wrote. Nathan, that idea and that the, – it's all true. Ohio State was in. They were – like they liked Deshaun. They tried to get him. There was this run for a while under Urban where they went after like the top quarterbacks in the country and they missed and they missed and they missed and they missed. And Deshaun Watson was at the top of that list. What do you think of that idea of how much would have changed if Deshaun Watson picks Ohio State over Clemson? What do you think, Nathan? I mean, it's definitely interesting to think about. It kind of goes back, though, to my back to the future pick, right? Because every every change that you make in the past would have ripple effects into the future. So the, is Justin Fields here right now if you go back and, and those things? Who knows? Who knows? But I think Ohio State fans Justin may Fields make that Justin Fields loves trade. Deshaun. Doesn't Steve, Steven, doesn't Justin yeah, they, Fields they, love Deshaun? They, yeah, that's Quincy Avery tree right there. That's yeah, I'm just saying. But, but, you don't know how, but you don't know how it changes Clemson's own quarterback tree and how much they would have recruited Justin Fields. Like, I don't know. Like, it, I think it, it opens some with, things up. I think they still go with Trevor. And if Dwayne Haskins or Joe Burrows is – if Dwayne Haskins or Joe Burrows is a starter in 17-18 – they're probably in the NFL, so you still have a hole in 2019. But I see what you're saying. Here's my only problem with this. It sounds great, but part of the let's be honest here. Part of the reason why they weren't learning, landing some of these top quarterback options was because of who they were going to be developed by. So yes, Deshaun Watson has all the talent in the world, but I mean, Doug, you were hurt here and we weren't. Are you confident in Tim Beck's ability to develop him? No, Deshaun but I Watson think I'm confident in the texter laying out the scenario that he, that Tim Beckett's fired quicker before he can screw up Deshaun Watson <laughs> and they get somebody else. Okay, um, so to that point, it, it would have to take um, Urban Meyer be, forcing himself to do what Ryan Day forced him to do when he got here. I mean, no. listen, it's, it's, it's one of those things. Some guys overcome, right? I yeah, mean, Deshaun Watson, and it's not like – I mean, Jeff Scott and Tony Elliott – um, Chad Morris was gone from Clemson by then. He was the guy who was like the quarterback guru at yeah. Clemson. I mean, like those guys are good assistants. Again, I think Deshaun Watson was going to find a way, right? Just like the, it's like the Jurassic Park thing, whatever they find, it finds a way. And if I, whatever my quarterback tree is, I would chop it down for Deshaun Watson. So from the five, one, three, the biggest miss is Deshaun Watson. Urban really went after him and, and 
went after him early on. And it seemed like it had some steam, but it's hard to say how much he considered Ohio State in the end. But wow, if he had come to OSU, I'm confident Ohio State wins at least one more natty. I feel his talent and older age would have made it a far easier decision to bench JT compared to Haskins or Burrow. Wow, really good, fun stuff. Listen, they win most of them, right? They win most of them. So it's not like we have to dwell on this stuff. But I think it's interesting to think about because there are just certain guys that one guy can make a difference. One guy can make a difference. Two more quick. You know what? I'm going to bail on one of these. There's a whole run of JT Barrett appreciation and question yeah. things at the end. I'm going to bail on that for now because we just dug in a lot on Deshaun Watson. This is our last rapid fire. It's about DeMario from the 513. Dug in your heart of hearts. I'm not sure I haven't answered this before. Nathan, Stephen, if I already did this, tell me. Do you think DeMario will have any sort of meaningful role this year? And if so, running back or wide receiver? Nathan. Let's start with your hearts. Do you think DeMario McCall has a significant role? I think we've touched on it in terms of when we've discussed the running back depth. Um, I think, well, first of all, let's not discount kickoff return as a meaningful role, right? Well, I think we can discount kickoff return as a meaningful role because we can kick discount kickoffs. They're all touchbacks. You go out there and you raise your hand in the air and then catch the ball. Okay, but I, 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 someone still has to do that. I, so I, I think he still has value for this team. But if they're asking whether I think he's going to get significant touches out of the backfield or be someone who gets into the rotation in a significant way as a receiver, no, I don't see it. Steven? I think he has the exact same role he had last year. Sometimes they use him as a running back. Sometimes they use him as a receiver, and he'll be on kickoff, and sometimes he'll be out there as a punt returner as well. So role, yes, significant, mm, I mean, word choice. Yeah, I just I just think it's not going to happen. I just think he's going to be one of those guys. I think he got lost in the shuffle. Um, moving back and forth between receiver and running back didn't do him any favors. Yes, there are a million questions at running back, but I think they have decided that he's like not a between-the-tackles, every-down running back. So even though there's a lot of question marks, I just don't think like they're going to get down to him in that kind of role. And as much as we want to imagine like a third-down back or, oh, Ryan Day wants to throw to running backs more or whatever, I think Ryan Day wants to play more true receivers in the slot. So I think that hybrid H-back role doesn't really exist in this offense that much anymore. And DeMario is caught in between. And I feel bad for him. It happens to guys. Um, I wish it wouldn't, but I am, I'm just not going to hold my breath. I will be pleasantly surprised if it happens. But I just think he might be one of those guys that just got caught in between. All right, that's going to do it. That was fun. Man, I thought that was fun. I like the the miss thing. This, we could do some more recruiting stuff. We're going to do a, a couple recruiting pods coming up. We're going to reset 2021 we're going to reset 2022 we're going to have steven do the heavy lifting we're going to have cam fields who's helping with our recruiting coverage come on and make his buckeye talk debut that's going to happen in the coming weeks but on friday we're going to reset everything we think about the buckeyes because i'm old and i forget and i want to pin these guys down too so that's going to be the Friday Buckeye Talk. We're going to go through every position group on the roster. We're going to state for the record what we think about everything, and then we can't wiggle out of it. This is what our expectations are for 2020. So if you find us confusing, if you find our opinions conflicting, if you think we're weird, listen to Friday's podcast. 
We do market down Monday. This is pin it down Friday. Like, this is it. What we think about Ohio State in 2020. Try the text. I don't even know if I said that this whole podcast. 614-350-3315. Thanks for your reviews. Make sure you're reading cleveland.com slash OSU. And that'll do it for this Thursday podcast. For Stephen Means and Nathan Baird, I'm Doug Maurice, And that was Buckeye Talk.